Hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of Outgrow's Marketer of the Month. I'm your host, Dr. Johan Lievens, and for this month, we're going to interview Beatrice Botera Arcila, who's an assistant professor of law at Sciences Po Paris and an affiliate at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. And she specialized in data governments. Thanks for joining us, Bea. Very, very so, happy to be here. Thank you, Johan. Wonderful. So, Bea, we're going to start with a rapid fire round just to break the ice. You get in this rapid fire round three passes. In case you don't want to answer the question, you can just say pass. But try to keep your answers to one word or one sentence only. Are you ready? I am ready. Wonderful. At what age do you want to retire? Ooh, I don't know. Um, I would like to have enough like certainty, like financial certainty, I'd say 60 to retire. But I don't know that I want to fully retire ever. We'll see. How long does it take you to get ready in the mornings? Goodness. Um, when I'm at my best, maybe 45 minutes. How many hours of sleep can you survive on? I can survive on six hours, but only for one or two days in a row. Then I actually need eight. What is one thing you regret spending money on? Oh, I have a funny story for that. Um, I once bought this like terrible American. This is hard to describe only on audio. It's like a globe of, it's like a very green globe of a basketball team. Um, and it's made of like plastic and it's huge for cheering on a match. And it cost me like $20 and it's ridiculous. Uh, and it's something that's still standing on my living room to remind me to spend my money better. What movie do you enjoy quoting the most? Um, I don't know. I, I wish you I can... had a better, a better, maybe Spider-Man with, with great power comes great responsibility, but I could do better with that question. I don't know. If you could be transformed into one animal, which animal would you choose? Um, I would like to be either a lioness, I guess, or some form of bird. Who is your favorite Disney character? Mm, my favorite Disney character. Um, you can pass. No, that's such a good question. Um, one of my favorite Disney movies was Aladdin. Um, so maybe Aladdin, I don't know. What are you most looking forward to? Um, oh, good question. I have a very exciting wedding happening in Mexico uh, later this year. That might be fun. I don't know. What is one thing you wish you enjoyed more? I wish I enjoyed parts of my work more. I wish I stressed less about them and enjoyed the process more and just knew the hard is part of it. What never fails to make you laugh? Um, tickles. How do you relax? I like to go out for dinner, do yoga or go for a run, um, which, spend time with friends. Go ahead. Which element of your current life would your 12-year-old self think of as cool? I live abroad and travel quite a bit. 
How many cups of coffee do you drink per day? Currently, I'm at three. And then the, the last one, the most valuable skill you've learned in life. Um, discipline. Discipline. Yeah. Okay, you, you, you got yourself with discipline to this rapid fire mm -hmm. round. <laughs> no, maybe. but maybe also, you know, actually also maybe like just being a bit relaxed and letting it flow. It's a mixture, yeah. it's a hard balance of both. Yeah. But so if we if we talk about discipline, what 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 more can you say about that? What's the skill there for you? Oh, I don't know. I think there's something about like being consistent and constant with the things that you want to achieve, which don't don't have to be work, right? There might be like relationships that you want to cultivate or things that you want to get good at if you're doing sports or something just being consistent and trying over and over um i think that's a valuable skill yeah okay this is a nice introduction or a pre-introduction to who you are um but it would be nice for our listeners to get to know you a bit better as well so um can you tell us a bit about your background and how you became interested in studying uh data governance in urban environments and the legal side of that Right. Who um, is Bea? Yeah. So, so yeah. So, my name is uh, Beatriz Potero Arcila. I'm a Colombian lawyer. I grew up in Colombia, in Bogota. Um, and, uh, and I first started, one of my first jobs out of university was on environmental law at the local level. So, one of the things we were litigating and talking to with clients was who should be able to decide environmental policy. Uh, at the local or national level and that was relevant because the national level had more vision and interest towards economic development than the local level. The local level was very focused about let's say local pollution for example and the national level was trying to balance where to get revenue from to pay for national-wide healthcare and that and that involved a more tolerance to things like mining um, and and uh, mining especially was what I was working on. Um, so I started working on cities first, and then I went to do my graduate education. I did my LLM and PhD at Harvard University in the U.S. Um, and when I was there, I started discovering this world of technology law. I had a very good friend working on AI, and she would take me to lunch talks and events, and and I, and that seemed super interesting. And quickly on, I discovered like this is. This is what I want to do. These are these are the people I want to play with, sort of. Um, and so my way through that was to find something that had already something to do with what I worked on, which was cities um, in the field that I wanted to be in, which was technology. So I ended up discovering that there was this growing field of technification of cities, um, and I and that's that's sort of how I ended up there. Um, and then I graduated from Harvard and went to teach at Science Po Law School, which is where I'm now. And I work, I still do research on a bunch of these things. And I started um, an NGO um, at the Bergman Klein Center called the Echelons Institute, where we also focus on information governance questions in cities, but mostly when they're used for security or surveillance purposes. Yeah, because can you make it a bit more palpable still for us? The, sure. What, what kind of topics do you work on then? Right, so yeah, that makes sense, thank you. Um, so many, one of them that might be familiar to many cities, mean people who live in large cities is how do we regulate Airbnb? Like how much can you actually sublet an apartment 
before it turns into a hotel. This is like a hotel, but it has like, it owns no real estate. So one of the things that I've, I've done some research on is how our city is dealing with how Airbnb has changed the way people live in the cities. Before you will have tourists somewhere and residents elsewhere, and now you have tourists with the residents and that changes a bunch of dynamics at the local level. So Airbnb is the type of thing that I've looked at. Uber is not so different, but Uber also has interesting questions, for example, about the mobility data that they have. So cities or urban planners are very interested in knowing what the data of e-scooters or Uber reveals, because it's interesting to know what further projects they should pursue, right? Like if you think about the scooter cases, maybe there's this like very famous shortcut everyone is taking. Um, but then if you have that data, if you have the mobility data of that scooter, you might actually build a bike lane through that path. Um, but that requires knowing. One of the things that it's hard to imagine for us is how difficult access to information still is, but was many years ago. And so that's one of the things that I look at. Should cities have access to that data? And then one of the, there's there are very good things that you can do with it. You can improve your bike lane infrastructure, for example, but that also creates surveillance and privacy risks, right? Like it's it doesn't seem very risky that we use that information for urban planning, but what if police departments or immigration agencies, eh, I mean, the police departments and immigration agencies are still super important, but for a variety of reasons, we've decided that they need some checks on their power. So one of the things that I look at is how do we enable access from different people to the information that we will collectively produce with our smartphones, with our different devices, eh, and how do we make sure that doesn't create more risks than the many opportunities that it creates. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Because uh, would you say, if you have to choose that, is this a dark story of the government versus tech initiatives, or is it actually a happy story with a lot of opportunities? Um, good question. I think it's somewhere in the middle of both. There are many happy stories um, where you actually have, I don't know, um, where you have tech companies collaborating in different ways with government to um, see where people were, uh, I don't know, at higher risk of contamination during the pandemic or something, like you have those. And that's a happy story, I think. And you also have risks and sad stories of people who are, uh, the Netherlands, if you're in the Netherlands, have like this terrible story of an AI system that was badly used and badly deployed in the social security system and harmed a bunch of families, and that's a terrible story. Um, and I think somewhere in the middle, there's a lot of complexity, right? Like, I think there's a very real need for governments to be efficient. Like, I don't think we want inefficient governments. And so one of the questions is, how do we make efficiency work? How do we make it good? Um, and tech is very good for that. I think there's a lot of people who are learning as they go. Um, there's a lot of people trying to do their job well, but still trying to understand how things work. And I think when when I when we go with Edgelands to different cities and talk to city officials and so on, a lot of what we find is a lot of complexity and people trying to figure it out. Um, and it's still up for for societies in different places. It's different to figure out exactly how these things um, evolve. Yeah. So that we're now looking at, at this tension, you and me, between the, the government intervening with things happening. If, if we would shift the perspective to the tech side, um, while different governments, different jurisdictions are trying to figure out how to regulate 
stuff? How to regulate yeah. user-generated content? Are they regulating information? Do you think there's a responsibility on the side of the tech industry to collaborate with the government to decide the best course of action? That's a that's an interesting question. Um, yeah, to a certain extent, but not too many, right? Because that question really depends on what type of government you have in mind when you ask it or when you answer it, right? So if I'm thinking about the happy urban planner, my immediate answer is like, yeah, of course. Like, why wouldn't you give us data on where should we build more bike paths? Um, but there are bad governments out there. There are authoritarian governments out there. Um, I don't want to say bad governments, but there, there's infrastructures of inform of 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 society that are less trustworthy sometimes, uh, and you don't necessarily want tech companies to collaborate with them. Like one of the things that you see in a bunch of civil uprisings around the world is that in authoritarian governments, social media proves a very important outlet for protesters, and that's an example in which you actually maybe don't want governments to collaborate with social media. Um, companies. So, so I think that's a tricky balance. Um, I think in general, though, tech companies have a moral responsibility, but also a business interest in trying to do but what's best for society. You know, like to what extent consumers respond to company policies is, I think, unclear. But in general, companies have an interest in making sure their users and their clients feel that they're not. The worst in the universe right so that their data is safe that the information that you see is somewhat accurate eh, and so on and i think you in general do see at least the larger tech companies in that moving in that direction yeah so th there's an optimistic tone in his in this story yeah i try to be an optimist I, I try to be a cautious optimist not all of it is great though but there's there's people trying to do good things i think yeah and if we look at the other side, the government side, do you believe that governments should routinely collect and share information on success and failure of uh, different technological policy measures across yeah, jurisdictions? Yeah, I think they should. And one of the things that you don't see is a lot of that. So a bunch of projects like they had a partnership with a company to do some experiments somewhere and maybe that doesn't succeed. And one of the things that we researchers struggle with is having access to the information of what were the metrics, what didn't work. Um, and I think that's also something that doesn't quite work for governments in the long run, because it's very hard to learn from experiences. Like there's a short-termism that's attached to government regarding elections and so on. You don't want to say that your project failed, but because there's that incentive, there's also very little information to learn from the things that work and the things that don't. Um, and so you see city governments like replicating mistakes around the world and maybe also not learning the way they could. Do, do you have examples of this, uh, a, a mistake that keeps returning? Yeah, I have a colleague called Burku by Kurt, Burju by Kurt, sorry. Um, and she's been, she's been doing a lot of research on smart city projects, which are big partnerships between tech companies and cities to improve Wi-Fi um, infrastructure and so on. And one of the things that her research shows is that but many of these projects eventually don't work out and they get just quietly shut down. So the partnership no longer exists. You stop seeing the signs of whatever, orange in a park somewhere. Uh, but the, com the the governments are very cautious to speak about it. So, so there's another city elsewhere, two hours away from city A, that now signs a new partnership 
um, because they they seen they these partnerships show an interest in doing something, but the city doesn't have like the information. Maybe um, this is my interpretation. That's not exactly Bourdieu's research, but she's been very good at following how this company, how these projects get quietly shut down um, and don't really work. And I think, yeah, so that's an example. This is mostly in the U.S., but I I could imagine that something similar might happen in some cities in Europe. Yeah. And it, it's almost funny that it's called smart cities, but then they're not smartly learning from each other's experiences. Yeah. Yeah. There's stuff that works in some places, but then how do we convey what works and what doesn't? I think yeah. the world can do better at that. Do you see examples of where it goes well, where information is actually shared and learned from? Um, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, sort of. Let me think of one. Um, I think, for example, the city of Amsterdam has uh, interesting projects on AI governance that I'm looking at right now and how they make, um, they have like a register to know what type of things, what type of AI systems you have a city government and they're sharing that information and, and that's supposed to be very interesting i'm looking at it but that's a very promising example i think it's also rather new um and i and think so that is about it, it's about ai elements in policy yeah so that are being they're publishing for civil society to see and scrutinize uh, yeah. where does the city government use ai systems and how does it use it um, yeah. and that's like a very interesting example of of a city that like wants to do things well and and it's publishing stuff um so I haven't looked at it in depth, so I don't know exactly how well it's working, but that I think is sort of uh, in the right direction. And then you also see um, open data portals. There are big Amsterdam's is huge, uh, Barcelona cities is huge, and and those are systems that sometimes are used by particulars to do things that they want to do. Um, so so slowly, I think, you know. But one of the things is that I think we are still at a point where we have to figure out exactly how good information sharing looks like, um, mm-hmm. at least in government, um, because the level of granularity, you know, information is not like an apple. You, you, you have to produce, you have to ask the system what information it needs to give you. Um, and so sometimes, you know, tech companies share mobility data, but it might be not granular enough for what the city government wants to do, but they're still sharing it. So there's a lot of nuance in the middle. Um, yeah. but, um, but I think there's also a bunch of the infrastructures that we use on a daily life uh, and we don't even notice. Part of it is anchored on information sharing services that work, right? Like the app that you use on your phone to figure out when your bus is coming. There's an information yeah. system working there where the bus company has an API where the app developer can connect and is giving you this insight. Uh, and those are things that work and make life a little bit more convenient. Yeah. And those examples are are maybe also examples in which you see that we need a collaboration between government and private initiative. Because if we were still, if I look at my own country and the experiences, if we were still using uh, only public data, we would still be in medieval times in terms of planning right. of routes and stuff. Yeah. While it's the the collaboration with Google Maps and other services that has shifted that the possibilities yeah. maybe for sure for sure that's an excellent way of putting it yeah 
You already mentioned the Agilent uh, Institute earlier. You're one of the, the co-founders uh, and then the head of research, I think. Yep. Um, the Agilent Institute aims to help communities redraw their urban social construct in an era of mass urbanization and surveillance. Yeah. Can so you tell us a bit on more? We're working on our mission statement. We're working on our mission statement. Yeah. Uh, because okay, I, don't bit... know, I don't know how clear that is, to be honest. Um, but that's, that's actually what we mean. One of the things that we see in different places around the world is increased polarization driven in part by social media. But security threats are also getting more urbanized as um, maybe as the world becomes urbanized, but there are also other factors. So you have, mm -hmm. for example, drug cartels being very active in very cities or in, in various cities around the world and creating dynamics of urban insecurity. Um, you have war being a very urban thing lately. If you follow the war in Ukraine, everything is about the city. There's you don't see it as in the movies where the armies meet in the middle of nowhere to have a fight. It's all about taking over a city, the siege of a city and so on. So so security has this urban dynamic and it's very technologified. So so we follow war through social media. You see a robber doing something through social media. There's CCTV cameras everywhere. Um, there's hot lists and so on. Uh, hot lists are uh, tools for governments to sort of map what the dangerous places in the cities are so they can deploy security forces in, more in that area than in others. Um, and there's like this concern, which is, I think, firstly, an academic concern, but there's some proof to it in different places that the use of the the dynamics of security and digitization can lead to further forms of discrimination, of segregation, a, a fragmentation of society. You, you don't have to go as far as physical segregation. Like you might have a dynamic at home that has polarized your family and social media is part of it. You know, like you ha we all have someone who shares a bunch of extremist messages in WhatsApp and so on. Uh, and so one of the things that we want to do through very localized work in different cities around the world is understand the nuance of this dynamic. So I don't think what I'm describing looks the same in Amsterdam as in Medellin, nor in New York, you know, like local dynamics are very different. And I think one of the, or we think that one of the challenges of the conversation is that we speak in very global terms without taking into consideration what is what's local, you know, like maybe some of the things that happen on WhatsApp that are very extremist in Colombia, which is where I'm from, they are actually very positive. I don't know. Um, but we want to look at the very localized example and then through that help local stakeholders or work with them um, to figure out what local policy responses should be. Um, so it's about localizing a lot of this very academic international conversation and creating momentum amongst local stakeholders so they can do what works best for them locally. And and so how, how is it going so far? How How is the... How is the work rolling of the Agilent Institute? It's fun. So we're very young. We're one year and a half. So one of our best achievements is that we exist and survive. Um, but we've done work in two cities, two and a half. We've worked in Medellin, which is a, a big city in Colombia. We worked in Geneva, which is where we're anchored, like corporately at least. We're working in another small city in Colombia called Cúcuta, which is the key city in the border of Venezuela. And Venezuela has a huge migrant crisis and Cucuta is the epicenter of a bunch of security concerns in Colombia. Like Colombia is not a easy country security wise. Uh, and I'm soon going to Nairobi because Nairobi is our next city. So we're going to go there and set up the team and everything. 
Um, and one of the things that we do when we go to each city is really try to understand what the local conversation is, the local situation, and create a set of activities or uh, moments where local stakeholders can own it in different ways. Um, and that's going well. Like you should all go online and check it out and see what you think. Um, but I think generally we have managed to have good reception in the different cities where we are, uh, get people interested. I think the next challenge is for us to be able to not, you know, our idea is not to be essential where we operate. We are a pop-up organization, which means that we are also set to disappear in three years. And it's because we just don't want to be the people who carry this conversation and own it from cyberspace or something. We actually just want to create local momentum so that people can do what works for them. That remains a challenge, exactly how we, like, how the work continues after us. Um, but it's interesting work. It's it's interesting to make it intercultural, to understand different contexts, different places, different difficulties, different relationships to technology. Um, and so far, we've built a great, great team um, that I'm super happy and proud of. Uh, they do everything. Um, and so, and we've done some also very interesting research on how these things look like in different places. So, so it's going well. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned you work with people, with local stakeholders. Can you make that a bit more specific still? Like what kind of groups? Uh... Sure. So every time we show up in a city, uh, we try to set up a local research team that has somewhere like three to four people that are, that are from that city or at least live and work in that city. Uh, and then we try to active, we try to work with nodes of the civic sort of ecosystem of a place. So we usually work with a local university. We try to reach um, NGOs that, for example, work with youth. Um, we also try to work with the local government, for example, understand what their concerns are, where where they can also use our help. You know, like I don't think local governments are an important part of the conversation. Um, we try to work with the local arts ecosystem because we think part of the things that happens when you're talking about surveillance is that it isn't the sexiest of topics and most people are like, ah, that's too much for me. So we try to work with arts or people who are in the creative industries to make it a little bit sexier and a little bit more palpable, make it seem something that's actually not that complicated and actually might be interesting and important for people who are, I mean, living, I mean, we are all connected, like knowing a little bit about this, I think should be general yeah. culture. Um, and, and that's what I mean. And then eventually what we try to create locally, and I think we managed to create a network of people who we know, who become our friends, who are interested in our work, who take us to whatever they are. Um, and those are maybe professors or students or just friends of friends, uh, people who are in think tanks and so on. And, and that's sort of what I mean by local. I don't know that stakeholders might not be the best word, but just the no, no, it's, it, it makes sense it, it's and it becomes more alive when you name these different groups and when you describe the dynamics so that's beautiful cool um you have a diverse set of experiences like you have an academic background you have practical experience as a legal advisor also for a fintech startup i think uh, you lecture on cyber law um you have the edgelands institute how do you think these diverse experiences have informed your work and your perspective on data governance? That's interesting. So I think I have all those experiences, but I think I'm very much a lawyer, uh, which is interesting because I, 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 I practiced 
as you mentioned, as a legal counsel and, and a little bit, but I've, I've been mostly in academia for most of my professional life. But I think I've approximated these conversations in different places often as a lawyer. And I think one of the things that being a lawyer offers is a framework in which you think about problems as the interests of different people that are being negotiated through a societal system. But one of the, so my approach is always about, I mean, I, I'm interested in creating value and public value and, and so on, but I'm also not very naive about what public value means. Even within public value, there are interest groups that benefit more than others. Um, and it's always our gain. And I think that's a very legal way of looking at it. There's always someone arguing a case for someone, no matter how objective you are presenting it. Um, my legal self tends to think like, who's, what's the lawyer behind this public statement or something? thinking about um and, and i think i think about that in terms of data governance as well right like who's winning uh, and who's losing when we share data in a particular way or when we don't uh, when we you know i care a lot about security i grew up in a very insecure place and i think security is important and maybe tech has a place to play there uh, and and i think about like who's winning and who's losing when we criticize tech in a particular way or when we deploy it in a particular way. Um, I think having like a client in mind is something that sticks with me through all of that. Yeah. And it, it almost sounds like there's a lady justice in the background because really? yes, we want to put, we, we, no, like we want to put uh, security in one side of the balance, but we don't want it to, to over uh, scale to one side. So we need to protect privacy yeah, data as sure. well. On the other well, side. we don't want security to mean insecurity for others, right? Yeah, yeah. So, as a fellow lawyer, I, I see the dynamic and I understand. It's uh, it's nice. Um, what drives you to keep pushing forward in your research? My research. Um, so research is one of the things where I sometimes struggle work-wise. Uh, yeah. Back to your first um set of questions. Uh, but I think that when I'm at my best, I think I'm a very curious person and I like learning about different things. What I struggle most is turning that into a piece of writing. Um, yeah. And I think curiosity is a big driver. So even if many of the things I sometimes work on are stressful, it's just so interesting to know what's happening, I don't know, in social media and the Ukraine war. You know, once, once I managed to go over my rea my emotional reaction is like wow like really like is this and i think curiosity is a is a big driver and something that i try to center and focus on yeah is that the bird that you you mentioned that a lion or a bird would be your animal is that the bird flying over the planet trying to discover stuff maybe maybe i hadn't thought about it but maybe it's the bird for sure yeah outside of your professional work you are also a music lover and you play the piano. Yeah. Um, do you think your love of music has impacted your work and your approach of problem solving? Yeah, I mean, I, I trained as a classical pianist. Uh, I don't play as much anymore as I should or would like to. Um, but for sure, I think playing piano taught me discipline uh, mm -hmm. and humility. Uh, and so maybe that also goes back to your first set of questions. Like it's something that you need to do every day for it to work. Uh, and you need to be patient with yourself and forgive yourself, but also be relentless in practicing. And I think that's something 
um, that I don't do as much anymore, but uh, it's something. But the other thing that I think music gave me is perhaps a love for people. You know, like I, I like people. I'm a people person, I think. Sometimes sometimes I'm an introvert, but in general, I like engaging. I I like when you're playing music or when you're listening to music, you hear different life stories and, and that's uh, just a privilege for sure. And also performing. And this is funny. Like I think in many of the things that I do when I'm when I'm lecturing for sure, um, but also when I'm just in a meeting or even right now, uh, there's a performer part of me that enjoys it, that likes to be on the spotlight a little bit and, and engaging my, my audience. Uh, and that I think I learned through music. Yeah. Nice. You're still on stage a bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, back to data governance. What is, according to you, one of the main challenges or maybe the biggest challenge even in terms of data governments that we're seeing the coming months, the coming years? Um, yeah. So I don't know what the biggest one is, but I have one in mind that I'm thinking of and is something related a lot to data security um mm -hmm. so i think increasingly whatever you are we've seen in the news a lot of cyber attacks um that are not necessarily organized crime war related or, or more like organized crime but like lower key but they have very big implications um and so and here in colombia we have like this insurance company that was hacked and the information of people was slowly leaked because they didn't want to pay and so on. Uh, there was this big hack in a hospital in the south of France, in the south of Paris, sorry, that also put out there the information of a lot of patients. Uh, and I think in a world of, there's a, there was a big hack to the International Red Cross Committee. Uh, they have super sensitive information of victims of war, refugees and so on. And I think in this like very information rich world that we live in, it, we still don't have, we have sometimes the, physic, the the digital infrastructure to keep it safe, but that's still vulnerable. And I don't think we still have like the governance frameworks to deal with uh, what happens when all this information is out there and can potentially be used to harm someone. Um, and one of the things that happened is that the harm still seem to be, maybe there are no real harms, maybe, but sometimes people are targeted with information that's in the dark web of some sort. And that to me seems dangerous. And I think that's only gonna grow in the coming years. Um, so we need to find ways to to deal with that. That's something um, that I've been reading a little bit lately and I find very interesting. Yeah. And, and the focus in the way you're talking about it is then not only on those stealing the data, but also what happens with the data afterwards. Yeah, so when... I'm a bit, you know, I think I'm a, I'm a big, I think in a lot of, data governance or, or personal privacy policy and so on we still think of information in like a either or format so either you are allowed to have it and use it or you don't either you gave consent or you don't either it's open or it's closed and i'm a and the type of scholar i guess that tends to think that we need to start focusing on uses and regulating uses so that even if i have access to information that is out there if I don't have, if that's a forbidden use, I shouldn't be able to use it. Uh, because I think that might be the only way of regulating information that just flows so much and explodes so much. And, and there's like a paradox with something that I said earlier, because you, for example,
still have local governments struggling to get mobility data. And at the other side, you have all our Twitter passwords leaked um, because they had a big hack a few years ago and whatever. Um, so there's like this imbalance and dissonance about how easy it is sometimes to access personal information and how hard it is sometimes to access valuable information like from a policy perspective. That's uh, and I think focusing more on what are the uses of information that we want as a society to allow and what uses we don't want to allow um, might be a step forward with booking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, we are at our last question for today and that's a okay. bit of a personal kind of question. Yeah. Uh, what would you, what would you be doing in your life if not this? Um I would be Oh my goodness. I think I would be working in like some form of economic development type of organization um working with I'm one of my drivers I guess is I care deeply about inequality and poverty maybe it's part of growing up in Colombia and so I would be working in something like that maybe with youth running an NGO of some sort hopefully I don't know so ambitious um but like I would be in that space I guess or maybe I would be a lawyer like a normal lawyer I don't know but that was my first reaction let's stay with that yeah okay wonderful thank you so much um for uh your clear and honest answers Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this month's episode of Outgrowth Marketer of the Month. This was Beatriz Botero Arcila. Thanks for joining us, Bea. Check out their website, edgelens.institute, for more details. And we'll see you once again next month with another episode of Marketer of the Month. Thank you. And thanks, everyone.